our life is really our practice. It's truly nothing other than this. Whether we're sitting for days on end in an intensive meditation retreat, or we're practicing in the midst of our family life, in the midst of our work life, in the midst of our play life, practicing in the midst of all the many and varied aspects of our life as a householder, which may include or may not include periods of occasional periods or more often periods of a formal sitting meditation practice as well. It's said that during the time of the Buddha, there were many, many householders who became fully enlightened right in the midst of it all. We might not hold out for this or we might not hold on to this possibility, at least not too tightly. But we certainly do wake up over and over and over and over again in hundreds of small and in bigger ways as we deepen in our relationship to our life as our practice. It's an inevitable fruit this, with this intention of ours to make our life our practice. Our karma is our dharma, actually. And that's the title of the talk, Our Karma is Our Dharma. One of the primary means, the primary skills, particular quality of mind and heart that provides the ground for awakening, provides the fertile ground for insight to blossom in moments of our life. This quality, this skill, is what's called mindfulness. It seems now that uh, mindfulness has become a quite a commonly used word. Uh, and in an intensive retreat, I sometimes refer to it as it's become a household word. How fortunate for us that it's a household word. <laughs> what is it really? What is it? And what is it that makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? This very incredibly powerful, very helpful and very protective skill. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping or non-clinging, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment. Any present moment a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping or non-clinging, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment. It's also meeting the moment with interest, with energy. Meeting the moment with an interested curiosity.
So what is it that makes this way, this, what is it that makes this flavor of meeting the present moment a spiritual practice? When we're so present in this way, there's an openness, there's room, there's a great spaciousness of heart, great spaciousness of mind, even if just briefly. There's a calmness, there's a spaciousness, and in this, there's room for clarity to arise, for insight, for true understanding to arise, which in a truly mindful moment is actually inevitable. It will arise. Wisdom quite spontaneously arises. We don't have to do anything to make it happen. Wisdom, true understanding, isn't very far away at all. In fact, it's right here. It's ever-present. It's not something we have to go after. It's not something we have to attain. In a sense, all we have to do is create the right conditions for this very natural occurrence to just simply happen. One of the primary occurrences is the development of a mindful attention. a mindful attention to the moments in our life, any moment in our life. It's not just an intensive retreat time that we develop mindful moments, but right in the midst of any occurrence, any situation, and sometimes in the most unlikely seemingly mundane occurrences with mindful attention, with a presence, a mindful presence, deep understanding can arise or a strengthening, a broadening, an expanding of understandings that have already come to us can happen. I sometimes think of mindfulness as magic, actually but not the kind of magic that the magician performs that takes us into the illusion and sweeps us into it and kind of holds us in it, but the magic of mindfulness that takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, right directly into the midst of reality. It sometimes feels like magic when this happens, when we see so clearly and when we're no longer caught in the veils of illusion. Just recently, last week actually, I came home to my house um, up in the mountains in Taos about four o'clock in the afternoon after a busy day, ready to settle down and prepare a Dharma talk for our Thursday evening sitting group that night. I was in the house for a few moments and I heard what sounded like rain 
coming down the heat stove pipe. There weren't any clouds outside. I looked out, there wasn't even a cloud over my little house. But it sounded like rain coming down my heat stove pipe. But there wasn't any, so I busied myself with some things. In a few moments, I noticed that there were dozens of small flying red ants <laughs> beginning to cover the carpet in my house and cover the floor, and they were coming out of the heat stove. There were dozens of them, and then there were hundreds of them, and then it seemed like there were thousands of them. My carpet was a kind of pulsing uh, aliveness of red ants. It was quite amazing. <laughs> and thoughts, of course, started coming very, very quickly. <laughs> like, uh, what to do, <laughs> you know? I have a Dharma talk to write, and these ants are here, and I can't write my Dharma talk, and how am I going to get rid of them, and maybe I'm going to be eaten alive in the midst of my own house, and uh, anger at the ants for taking up the time and the space that I was supposed to be preparing this inspiring talk for students that night. At some point, I noticed that the ants were in this great sort of vibrating swarm that was covering my par carpet, which at that point were literally thousands of them, I think. I didn't count, but um, they were moving towards the light. They were moving in the direction of the windows and the doors. Uh, that was sort of interesting to me because they, they couldn't see, but they had a sense. At one point, I started feeling very, very much in the minority. There was just one little me, this little person, and thousands and thousands and thousands of these ants. And a fear came up. I thought, I'll have to leave. And that was at the point where I thought, maybe I'll get eaten alive in my own house. The mind is pretty tricky, actually. <laughs> And all of this happening very quickly, and I thought, I can't, I can't kill these ants. It, I just can't do it. In fact, the, the thought of it and seeing the, the life force there in my, on my carpet, the thought of killing them all made me nauseous, actually. So I knew I couldn't do that, but what to do? I called my landlord and got a hold of her on the phone, and she said that the same thing had happened to her <laughs> last spring, and that the ants make a nest in the stovepipe, and on a nice warm summer day, uh, after a rain, they hatch. And you know how anthills are, there are thousands of ants in an anthill. They come down the stovepipe, they also go up the stovepipe, and they came into the house in, out of all the openings in my heat stove. The thing to do was to close up the stove with saran wrap and tape, so I busily set myself to doing that. But I also needed to get rid of them. I didn't know what to do, because I couldn't kill them. So I decided to vacuum them up. <laughs> I vacuumed them all up. It took a couple of hours. The whole thing took about two and a half hours. I vacuumed them all up and then took the vacuum cleaner bag outside and opened it up and let them 
go into where they really wanted to be anyways, uh, out into the open, natural world. At the end of the two and a half hours, it was time for me to leave for my, my uh, sitting group. And I, I hadn't um, written a Dharma talk. But uh, it occurred to me, actually, somewhere along in that process, that my karma was going to be my Dharma that night that this whole experience would be the perfect thing to um, take to the students, which I did, and also bringing it here now. Um, there was an incredible uh, amount of understanding and insight that came in the midst of all of this um, strange uh, phenomena happening in my life, strange and seemingly quite mundane phenomena. When the ants were moving towards the uh, light, that very innate, very deep um, instinct to, towards staying alive, I could feel it. I could feel it in their movement and in their very intuitive sense of moving towards, towards the light, towards the outside. And I could feel that in my heart, a kind of tug, a kind of quivering in my heart of knowing that too, knowing that same feeling, not different from what was happening with this pulsing uh, life on my carpet, my living room carpet. I also felt off and on through that couple of hours the preciousness of, the hum- of human existence kind of two aspects of that. One is that we really are a rare species. If you think of how many just ants there are in the world, let alone other insects and other creatures, there's not very many of us humans. We're a pretty rare species in this in this world. And I was really feeling it quite graphically in the midst of my living room as being a minority in the midst of thousands. The other thing, the other aspect of precious human existence that that uh, came up for me was a a very ancient teaching uh, that I remembered again about precious human existence, which I'd like to read to you. Um, It said that those who have a precious human existence and have the opportunity to practice the Dharma in the precious in this precious human existence are as rare as daytime stars. There's also an ancient teaching story that I remembered in the midst of this uh, that I like a lot. It says that if all the world were water and a golden ring were thrown upon the water to be blown about by the winds. A blind turtle, surfacing once every hundred years, would put its neck more easily into that ring than you would obtain a precious human existence. And so now that we have obtained this precious human existence, to not set out on the path of practice that leads to freedom, would be more wasteful than a poor man who finds a house filled with precious jewels and who didn't do anything meaningful with them but just frittered them away. 
And of course, as I've already mentioned, the, the first precept was, um, of not killing was very, very potent for me that afternoon during those hours with the ants. So the Dharma talk that night uh, was very lively, actually, and very pertinent in lots of different ways for the people that were attending. My karma became our dharma that night, thanks to the ants, and thanks to the magic of mindfulness, actually, right in the midst of it all. One of the most potent pieces of practice that we're given in our householder life, and very powerfully and very clearly through our children, is the teaching and the practice of impermanence, which is really the bedrock of the Buddhist teachings. This was the initial insight that impelled the Buddha to leave the palace that he was born and grew up in in search of a path to enlightenment. In our formal meditation practice, we learn to see and we learn to surrender to the fleetingness of the moment, a breath, a thought, a sensation in the body, a feeling, arising and changing and passing again and again and again. Our children are such wonderful teachers for us in this seeing and this surrendering to change. We keep learning over and over and over again through our children, with our children, to just let go. To let go so that their ever-changing nature may unfold. Our children continuously remind us to loosen our mindset as to who we think they are or who we think they should be or who we think they could be. They continually remind us to pay attention when we get stuck or when we forget as they just continue becoming who they are. My youngest son, who today is 30 years old, used to look me right in the face and nicely, or at least fairly often nicely, uh, he would say, Mom, you don't have to say that. Or he'd say, Mom, you don't have to do that. He was my mindfulness bell many times as he was growing up. And it surprised me. It usually surprised me and woke me up. And occasionally he still does this to me in a very similar way. To let go tells me to stop, pay attention, see who he is now, and then now, and then now, and to wake up, to just wake up to the present moment, just as it is. Khalil Gibran said, Your children are not your children. Your children are not your children. They are sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. 
You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. This process of bringing children into the world and then raising them has seemed to me over the years basically a process of letting go. Letting go in the midst of deep love. Letting go in the midst of the heart of compassion. Letting go with the very natural and growing wisdom that inevitably arises in and out of our intention to make our life our practice. This is a poem by a man named Red Hawk. It's called, The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go, but he is not free enough to weep. So he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish, his heart blooms, and like the last mad king of wild wheat, he grabs his child and twirls her. Through the sea of grain, he whirls her. She holding tight, he boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed. On his knees, he embraces her. And then she takes her leaving, like a wild wheat flower dancing, waving in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go, weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight, and he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now that his daughter is departed, to harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way, he pays homage to the precious seeds he planted. One blooms by rooting and one by blowing away. The potency of the practice of impermanence is so immediately accessible in our life as householders in an endless array of ways when we're paying attention in any moment. All of the changes in daily life, many of which we may have subtle or maybe strong resistance to at times, actually much of the time we're practicing permanence not impermanence. Much of the time we want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it or become the way we want it to be. So much of the time we believe that we have control and we believe that things will always remain the same or do what we want them to do. But this belief really is only make-belief make-believe. As we more and more 
begin to see clearly, we begin to discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. We often construct our lives on this kind of flimsy, kind of rickety foundation of make-believe or make-believe, made-up beliefs with all of the assumptions, sometimes misinformation, opinions, ideas about this and that, and we hold on quite tightly, often. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena? Change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without impermanence, actually, there would be no life. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. If there is no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have a, a, an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. So instead of complaining, we might say, complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. Can you imagine if nothing ever changed? It would be the most incredible nightmare, actually. So looked at from this perspective, impermanence is actually an amazing natural marvel. All of the life on the planet is changing all of the time. All of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in the same volume as the new life is arising. For instance, the new life that brings such incredible joy and delight to us each spring, and the new day or the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up. This is from William Blake. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. As we look more and more closely at our own process, particularly at a time like this, when there is more time to do this and support to do this, as we begin to explore more deeply by simply being with things as they are, we might begin to see that we've been living under what one teacher called an assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and thoughts and the grasping and trying to hold on to these ephemeral thoughts, feelings, emotions, all of these habitual 
fixations that we live with and believe and call our own, call me, call mine, that we think it's who we are. As we practice in our formal practice, in our life with a mindful attention, we, we do begin to see, we begin to experience more and more directly that things, that the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear or at least as they have appeared up to now, up to any moment. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of energy with various qualities, flavors, textures. Again, our children are some of the best, very best teachers in this respect, as they quickly, so quickly manifest changing emotional states with just, within just a few moments, changing likes, changing dislikes, within just a few moments. As we deepen in our acceptance and our understanding to change, to impermanence, our relationship to all the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. And what might be a kind of compulsive, addictive grasping, a trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen, begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what actually is uncontrollable this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life, begins to soften. And we open our hands, so to say. We begin then to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath the impulse to control, the fear of being in and with life, begins to relax and open the fear begins to weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender, open to and surrender more and more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. Many of us, probably actually most of us, have at times had a very strong identification with our face and with our body, how it looked when we were younger. My mother, who um, is 85 years old, sometimes she and I will stand next to each other looking in the mirror, not as a planned event, but it just happens. One time this was happening and we were looking in the mirror together at ourselves and at each other, at each other. And she said, I see an old woman. She said, it's so strange. And she kept repeating over and over and over again, it's so strange, I see an old woman. And then she said, I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And then she said, I've changed more than anybody. 
It's so strange. And she kept repeating. She said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange, so strange. But what is it strange? I mean, stranger than what? (laughs) It's life. It's just life being lifey, life doing what it does, life doing its thing. Have you ever stood in front of a mirror and looked at your face quite intently for a long time, just focused your attention on your face? If you do, it keeps changing, just keeps changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? If you've never tried it or if you haven't done it for a long time, try it sometime. In our our life, our life is practice. Another potent teacher, of course there are many, many, is, is the world of nature, of course. A number of years ago, I was here at the meditation center and in the midst of a long retreat, and this happens to be a story out of a long retreat, but it could be at any moment in any of our lives being uh, outside and paying attention. I was sitting out back and I was watching the grasses. Uh, It was late fall and things were changing quite rapidly. And I was watching the grasses and over days, particular blades of grass even, you know, sometimes when you're on a long retreat it can get kind of fixed on certain things. <laughs> so I was watching these blades of grass changing. They were changing color. They were losing their color. They were changing shape. They were curling over. They were drying up. And just watching this happen in a kind of intent way over the days, Are we different than this? Really, are we different than this? No matter how much moisturizer we use, (laughs) no matter how many vitamins we take or how much healthy, good food we eat, no matter how much exercise we do, our skin dries out. Our body changes shape. Our hair loses its color no matter how hard we try. We just don't stay young. This this mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. This is from uh, very wonderful, no longer alive, although he actually has been reborn, Kalu Rinpoche. (laughs) We live in the illusion and appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. In our commitment and our intention to 
make our life our practice, as our karma becomes our dharma, and with a deepening acceptance of the natural wonder of change, impermanence, this quite naturally leads us to the reality of interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, the reality of interconnectedness, the reality that we truly are everything, that, as Jose said the other night, that I am because you are, that you are because I am. Again, our family practice and our children are such strong teachers. We know from photographs taken of the development of the fetus in the womb that a baby, that each of us in the womb goes through the various stages of evolution as cells multiply and develop into the human form. When my children were born, after they were born, and as they were going through their developmental stages out of the womb, I found myself being quite fascinated, quite amazed, actually, as they again reflected the evolutionary stages of life on the planet. I found myself calling them little fishy, (laughs) as they were lying on their bellies and making swimming movements. And then they became little lizards or little snakes as they were squirming along the floor. And then frogs, when they first began sitting, hunched over in their round baby bodies. And then they turned into four-leggeds, the slow-moving kind at first, and then into the speedy, agile four-legged creatures. And then finally, they stood and moved into the upright, two-legged world of human beings. I actually hadn't paid very much attention at all to this process until I'd had my own children. I'd never really noticed it. This intimate observation and relationship, this connection to a process that is truly much, much bigger, much broader than what was taking place with my own children, was in moments an incredibly expansive, inclusive, and awakening experience. There's nothing left out, nothing left out in our family practice, in our life as our practice, as long as we're willing to keep engaging and opening to the gifts. Just a few weeks ago, I was teaching a retreat in New Mexico. A grandmother in her mid-60s came in for an interview. In her work life, she's a high-powered politician in the Texas legislature. She told me that during this past year, a new grandchild was born into her family. And so she went to visit the family very soon after the birth took place. 
and her son and daughter-in-law let her hold the baby for almost the entire four days that she was visiting. And she cried, actually, for a good part of those four days with the baby in her arms. And her son thought something was wrong, but she assured him that, in fact, everything was quite, quite okay. She told me that she had forgotten the incredible purity and the complete presence of the very young. She hadn't experienced this for a long, long time in her life in the political world. Her heart was simply opening again. She was crying tears of, of deep joy, touching this essentialness, this pure beingness, touching again what's sometimes called our original face. The baby was a reminder, a heart opening. And along with this also, there was an arising of the heart of compassion in her, compassion both for herself and for others, for how far away we can get from this, from this profound connection, how swept up in other important business we so often are. This is from a Tibetan song of enlightenment called The Flight of the Garuda. Knowing that this state is within oneself, how amazing that one searches for it elsewhere. Although it is clearly manifest, like the radiance of the sun, how amazing that so few see it. No matter how much happiness and sorrow is experienced, how amazing that it is never impaired or improved in the slightest. This self-awareness is naturally free from the very first how amazing that it is liberated by just resting at ease with whatever happens. Our karma, our family practice, our commitment to relating to our life as our practice and our children being maybe the strongest, most powerful teachers that we will encounter. encounter. This is our dharma. I sometimes think of awakening as becoming a wise baby. The complete presence that babies, that very young children have in the midst of whatever is taking place inside them and around them. It's a preverbal, non-conceptual, total presence. Can we be so present, even for just a moment? Granted, new beings don't have the capacity to understand, but we do in our maturing selves, in any moment of pure presence. We have the capacity to understand, not out of our intellect, but the spontaneous intuitive wisdom that arises quite naturally if we're present in our lives with a mindful attention 
present with a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping or non-clinging, non-rejection, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment. Maybe as we wake up we become like a wise baby. I'd like to close with a poem called Hokusai Says. Hokusai, maybe you know, is the Japanese painter who painted this, that huge wave, great big wave that is pretty well-known, pretty popular. This is a poem by Roger Keyes called Hokusai Says. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive, shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive, water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or in your living room. <laughs> or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.